Look at that. Shaved my beard, wearing glasses. I look like a uh, a 30-year-old female librarian. All right. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, today, well, like last week, actually, I did this, I did this interview, but, uh, I interviewed my friend James Evans, and, uh, this was probably, like, more of a, I really enjoyed this episode, actually. I was kind of nervous, because, like, I didn't think I'd be able to, like, keep up with the type of conversations we were having. We started off talking about, like, um, just the financial aspects of being a stand-up comic, uh, as well as, well, sorry, then we divulged into talking about um, politics, uh, because I can't, I'm sure you can't wait to hear my hot take on the political situation. Yeah, everyone has a freaking political opinion now, including me. Um, yeah, uh, by all means, I don't think uh, it's a valid opinion or a good one, but, you know, nonetheless, fun to have. Um also, I think I should write a little dis- or say a little disclaimer. Anything or advice we give in this episode should not... I don't even know what to say. Basically, we're not accountants. We don't know what the fuck we're talking about. If you do take any advice from this, it's at your own discretion. Basically, we are not liable for any advice that we give, financially speaking. Um, I can't even get a mortgage. You know, you don't want to take advice from me. James, James probably can. James works at a bank. He'd be able to help you out. Um, just don't take my advice. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Tell me what you think. Smash, smash that like button, and don't forget to subscribe. Um, and everyone who has already subscribed, thank you. Uh, you mean the world to me. Bye. Oh, there we go. We're live. Awesome. There we go. No, what I was saying is I was like, I think with doing this, it's kind of helped me a tiny bit with my ability to have like a longer form conversation. Yeah. But I do try to like taper my body language a tiny bit more, if that makes sense. I don't know. Do you mean in terms of how you present to other people while yeah. you're speaking? Yeah. Because I, I, I am quite mindful of me being like, you know, closed off and yeah. physically like, you know, so... Like, that can come across totally different to just being more laid back and, and kind of chill. I think we're so used to, like, such short form of presentation. Like, even in, in the workplace, if you have to give a meeting, it's always, like, short, sharp to the point. Mm. They just want the high-level overview. And, yeah, like, the internet has almost created this platform where now these long-form conversations are becoming almost a preferred choice of media for a lot of people. I think you're... Very right. I was talking, so on, I think my fourth episode on this, I had uh, a psychologist on, Amy Amy Munsterman, and we were talking about how, uh, where like these high rates of anxiety and stuff like that come from within, within society, and especially amongst young people. And she was saying how a lot of the time it's social media that's to do with this. Do you hear, what is that noise? That's my mouth. <laughs> I'm going to turn the gain down a tiny bit. Hello, hello. Yes, there we go. That's probably... That's, see, this is, this, is, this is what it's all about. There we go. She was talking about how with social media, it's kind of allowed people to kind of curate and create a much better image of themselves that you can be way more deliberate with. Yeah. Whereas in real life, you take away that organic aspect of being able to have a conversation and 
the idea of awkwardness, which then translates to, you know, anxiousness has become a lot more prevalent. Do you think as well, and I'm not a psychologist, so I could be talking a whole lot of shit right now. Neither am I. Um, But do you think like social media also enables people to create a vision of, of who they want themselves to be? And therefore when they have to face realities of their shortcomings or like things that don't match them with that image, can be anxiety causing because they get stressed out that what they're trying to portray online is actually not the reality. And then everyone around them can actually see that organic reality for their shortcomings or the failures of what's happened. And that just freaks them out of it. Definitely. Yeah. I I think, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think people like aspire to be something, but then when they're not, yeah, I think you step out of your comfort zone more so and you, you cr- yeah I, I i wish i was smart enough to like express this but i think you're totally right i think people they have their shortcomings more so in the real world where they're less able to control the situation yeah and that in itself can be pretty problematic have you watched the midnight gospel no what's it about um is so it a movie? do you know who duncan trussell is mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he it's his tv show and it's just Basically, the overarching theme of it all comes down to like mindfulness, but it's just really amazing because it'll be like the cartoon, just random crazy stuff happening in the background. And then the audio is like literally just the podcast. So he'll be like interviewing someone and they'll be running through a zombie apocalypse or something. And like when you watch it as a like end to end, all the episodes just like binge on Netflix. Yeah. But you kind of see like the overarching theme to this is all these crazy stuff going on in the background, but they're still living their best lives. And so hold on. It's like a animated TV show. Yeah. But the dial, like the audio has nothing to do with the visuals. So the, they tie it in. So like you and I might be walking through the city and that could be the, the cartoon we're having an interview. Yeah. But in the background, there's like crazy stuff going on. So like, it might be like we're fighting zombies while having this, podcast talk right now for example oh oh that's kind of cool it's intense yeah i'd love to check that out it's on netflix yeah it's on netflix i'll check that out so james mr evans gavin (laughs) what do you do um so i work in the finance industry um my background is much uh it's pretty much in lending um and retail credit um which in in layman's terms i guess is like home lending um so i approved loans essentially um well i did for a number of years before moving into different roles um but yeah keen to talk about i guess pros of of going into your own business and from a comedy standpoint right yeah well i was kind of curious to get you on because i wanted to talk about um i think within like uh, the arts in general there's like a general lacking of and myself is included in this just business savvy you being business savvy and especially when you're going in as an artist, you're very much, you're kind of like a business owner, you know, a sole operator. Yeah. You know, and the product is the stuff you create. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of business owners, and it's not just artists, but um, people who want to start a business, they're so passionate about it that they're going to sacrifice other things in their life to start that business. But a lot of the time, the passion can get the actual product made and things develop, but it's the administration yeah. side, the boring stuff that no one wants to do that kind of gets overlooked. And that can really lead to a business failing when 
it may have solid credentials on the yeah, the nuts and bolts of it, eh? It yeah. just kind of goes out the window. There was that. What's that statistic where somebody was saying like, you know, ninety percent of businesses fail in their first year. It's I don't know the exact number, but it's that's a really high the, amount. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the wrong. I think it was like something like around about sixty. But my thinking about that as well is like that. A lot of people use that statement as saying like, you know, be careful. It's really really hard out there. Yeah, which it is. But I do wonder about how many of those people are genuinely trying. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> like, like, like you know, it's like people. I think a lot of like you know, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm 40, I'm gonna open up a restaurant with no restaurant experience. Yeah, that's probably fair. I think like it requires. There's probably a lot of businesses that uh, people start without actually costing it properly as well. Like yeah. they don't have the funding, and you know they can't get the funding from the bank or other lenders and. Uh, then ultimately they're trying to put out a half-baked product because what they thought they were going to be able to create is going to be too expensive. Mm -hmm. And now they create something that's like a compromise on the original thing. Yeah. Now, before we go any further, just one disclaimer, anything we talk about here should not be taken as direct financial advice. Neither of (laughs) us are qualified to advise you on anything financially (laughs) speaking. Which kind of makes this whole podcast somewhat redundant. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Fuck off. All right? You don't know me. Anyway, or James here. Sorry, James. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I'll just put a qualifying statement to that too. Um, like I've done a bit of research here. I'm not an accountant. Um, while I work in the industry, it's a big industry. So yeah. um, ultimately, if you get some inspiration from this, please go and talk to an accountant as well. Yeah, and do your own <laughs> research. I have a history degree, okay? I know nothing about financial stuff, and which is why I have James on, who also apparently knows nothing. So <laughs> <laughs> let's get into it. Now, I did want to talk to you about, um, I guess, like the first steps uh, for... for now, now, you have helped uh, comedians in the past in terms of helping them with their financial... Uh, structures is that would that be fair to say and, and as, as far as like you know invoicing creating a business as yeah. a comedian is that right it, that's essentially so um i guess there's a few things i help with like filing taxes so okay. um income tax and what sort of documentation and records need to be kept for business purposes um and then the invoicing i guess kind of does tie into that as well so um but if you're wanting to start that turn your I guess hobby or passion into a business then being professional in the sense of having that stuff in order is just going to make it like if you go to a gig and it's a paid gig and Mm -hmm. you have the invoicing ready to go on the letterhead the gig organizer is going to be like that person was great to work with it was easy seamless do it again you know and so let's so let's start with that so let's say um I'm a I'm a comic right yeah and I've been doing it as a hobby and I want to start turning it into, I guess, semi-professional. We're starting to get paid here and there. What are the first steps, I guess, as far as uh, tax-wise that you would think that I should go through? Yeah, good question. So when you're starting a business, most people who are starting, I guess, as a comic for yourself, you're be what's called a sole trader. Okay. And there's a few different business structures. And this is within New Zealand. This is within New Zealand. For all the international listeners (laughs) out there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
So sole trader basically means that you're trading under your own personal name and your own personal tax number or IRD number. Okay. And it's actually really easy to set up. You don't need to go through any big legal um, formalities. You literally just have to inform the IRD that you're going to be a sole trader. You can get what's called a New Zealand business number um, if you want, but being a sole trader, it's not compulsory. Um the next step is basically to then keep a copy of all your records and this can be um, things that you spend on your business as well. So for example, studio equipment, um, that could be a business expense. So when you or I pay tax on money that we earn from our jobs, um, we basically get, say, say we earn $1,000 a week, we'll get tax taken out of that and we'll get the money that comes into our profits in our hands. Businesses work a little bit differently. So businesses, they will get all their earnings, which will be what you invoice people. Um, and then out of those earnings, you deduct all your expenses. So it might be what you buy for your equipment, travel costs, what it costs to rent venues, anything that's related to that, even entertainment if you um, are networking with other comedians and that sort of thing. And when you pay your tax on it, you only pay tax on, on the profit after expenses have been deducted. So the right. profit. Okay. So if you're working another full-time job and it really is just starting this business as a hobby but wanting to grow it chances are you're going to spend more money on equipment at the beginning than what you're actually going to bring in in terms of a profit so if that business makes a loss um you don't pay tax on that loss but you may also be able to attribute that to tax that you've paid in other earnings so you could actually get a tax refund from your first couple of years as a comic while you're starting out and while you're spending more money on getting the equipment and getting established than what you're actually bringing in. Right. So let's say I'm a comic. I have a full-time job. I'm getting paid 50K a year. Yeah. And then um, I don't set up as a business. I'm a sole, sole trader. Is that what you said? Yeah, sole trader. So I'm a sole, I set up as a sole trader and then I take in uh, $5,000 worth of revenue from comedy. Yeah. I spend... 4.5k on miscellaneous equipment mics all that jazz transport to and from but i keep a record of all that i'm only taxed but that 5,000 that i get paid there's like withholding tax and stuff like that so i get am i already being taxed on that 5k and then i get the refund so i technically have earned 50,000 50 50k plus 500 dollars yeah, so that would be, in that situation, correct. So you would have had $50,000 from your salary mm -hmm. and then the extra $5,000 revenue minus the 4,500 expenses mm -hmm. means $500. So you'd be taxed based on $50,000 and $500. Got you. And the risk is if I don't keep a record of all my expenses, I'm actually getting taxed on 55K. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. Or, I mean, if it's under the table, you wouldn't be taxed at all. But... Um, there's no, nothing <laughs> is ever under the table. No. <laughs> it's all and, above and, board. And that's the really important thing, right? If you want to turn this into a business and mm -hmm. you actually want to, um, make your main source of living from it, then the sooner you can get from a point where you're just taking cash in hand for the odd gig to, oh, actually have an established business with, um, a record of finances that's when people are going to take you seriously. And if you, well, when I say people, I mean mainly institutions and things yeah, like yeah. that. So from a perspective of like growing the business, if you wanted to say 
get credit to put down a deposit for a big venue and obviously we're talking like a um you know theater big or something like sort that. of level yeah, of growth yeah. then having those ducks in a row you know you couldn't just go to a theater and be like i want to hire this out sure sure you know here's some cash there's actually got to be contracts and terms and things like that got up. you that makes a lot of sense yeah that's very so it's um and at what point do you try and become like incorporated so being incorporated is um, what we call in New Zealand, it's called a uh, limited liability company. Mm-hmm. So you may have seen like limited LTD around on buildings. Um, it, it's basically, you can do that at any point when you want to. And the separate, the difference is under a sole trader, you're under your personal name. So everything that was related to the business comes back to you personally. So for example, if you took a $10,000 loan as a sole trader, then your business went under, you defaulted on it, you're gonna pay back that $10,000 loan. In a limited liability company, that company becomes its own entity. Mm -hmm. So it can actually borrow and um, save and own assets in its own right. So it might be say Gavin Limited took out the $10,000 loan and the company went under, you may not be necessarily be, there are some circumstances where you are, but for this purpose, you may not be liable for the loan payment of right. that company. The company is, and the if it goes is. under, then yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. And so that's pretty much, you probably want to get to that point when you're dealing with bigger, bigger amounts of money and there's more inherent risks and stuff like that. Yeah, so there's actually um, like a website called business.govt.nz and it's got a little... I guess it's like a tool calculator thing and they mm. ask a few quick questions uh, for people starting a company and it comes out what sort of structure is recommended for you. There's also a structure called a partnership which is rather similar to a sole trader but it's for like two people. So mm. if it was like you and your mate starting a business you might go into a partnership together. Right. Um, but yeah, that's probably a good starting point for people that are interested in, in registering a business is just to do that. It takes about five minutes. Um, but if you wanted to say sell the company in the future, that may be like a reason to set up a limited company rather than being a sole trader. Because if you're trying to sell your business as a sole trader, um, you're basically trying to sell something that is you personally. Like if you think about it, like a plumber um, who's a sole trader wants to sell the business, well, everything that's in that one person's name has to be changed over to the new buyer's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may mean things like going through loan applications and that sort of thing. Um, but if it's a company, then that person that wants to take over the company can just buy the shares in that company and then essentially assume control of the entity without going through all the transfer. So it's like a lot more stuff. seamless then if, uh, if you just want to buy out, like buy the company out. Yeah. yeah. The downfalls of a company for like someone starting out is, is a lot more paperwork and a lot That's more what I hear. legal yeah. stuff. I do know if you want to like get, um, what is it? If you want to get grants and stuff like that, you have to be incorporated. Yeah. Uh, which apparently it's not even really worthwhile until you have like a consistent regular thing going as far as comedy goes. Like we have a show out in Newtown, uh, line them up comedy, um, (laughs) (laughs) every month, uh, plug. Um, and we were looking at getting some funding for it and, to get funding, yeah, we needed to become incorporated. But the amount of paperwork that was involved on the back end of things, it's like, honestly, the amount of time you'd be spending, is you're just better off, uh, you know, just not not doing it. So do these funds exist? Are they like through community like organizations? Gaming, gaming funds, there's quite oh, a few. Sure. And I think there's also like government grants. Uh, there's like, so I think the government grants do it 
once every six months. Don't quote me on that. But then there's also the gaming funds, like the Lion, the Lion Foundation, okay. which it's I think like is Pokey's money. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's ex- that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and so like you can get the grants from that, uh, and it's usually it varies in amounts, but you know it's anywhere from you know a few hundred to you know four grand or something like that, depending on the scale of what you're doing. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, they, they I think they've been given out quite a bit since COVID, like the whole relief funds and everything. Um, I want to. Do you know the difference between going bankrupt in New Zealand versus in the States? Because in the States, you're kind of rewarded for going bankrupt in a way. You can just be like, ah, I could take crazy risks and then just go bankrupt and then set up another company right after. But there's yeah. jail time here in New Zealand for that, right? Um, I think it depends. Like, if you've, it depends how the bankruptcies come out. Like, if it's through just genuine unfortunate circumstances where the business went insolvent um, mm. and there's been no misaction by the directors um then there's probably not going to be jail time um right but if the director has recklessly traded the company um so made decisions that led to the company i I mean a simple example would be companies losing money hand over fist for the last three financial years and the director continues to i guess attest to the viability of the business when it is clearly not viable that may be deemed as like reckless trading um, which could result in, I guess, charges and then prison sentences. It's probably not that common though. Like bankruptcy is ultimately like a tool for people to who have no other option to get out of paying obligations that they can't hope to meet. Sure. Um, I haven't researched this part of it, so my stats may be incorrect here, and I apologize if they are. Someone on YouTube is probably going to be like, what are you talking about? No, no one on um, YouTube is watching this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, I think... Uh, when you become bankrupt, you've got like three years um, where you are basically bankrupt and under that time, you can't borrow anything. You have um, someone appointed to you to basically manage your affairs. So if you wanted to go overseas or anything like that, you have to apply for permission to do so. Um, And they do like an assessment. There's a list of some assets that you're allowed to keep. I think it's like a car up to a certain value, the family home, um, providing it's not mortgaged to someone because then they'd take it. Um, but then after the three-year period, you become a discharge bankrupt. And then for seven years, I believe you are a discharge bankrupt. And that means that on your credit report, it's going to say that you were bankrupt. Right. But after those three years, any outstanding debts that you have remaining are pretty much just forgiven. And it's like a clean slate. Okay. What happened to Terry Surapisos? <laughs> are you familiar with that? Yeah. Like, are you pretty well? Because I, I know my... Um, he built my building. Well, I, <laughs> he built like most people's buildings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was like all sorts of problems. I went to high school with um, his son and his nephew, actually, one in college, yeah. just down the road from there. But yeah, because he was had the same thing, right? But his family... He, like, you know, was given, like, really nice cars through his family and stuff like that. So, that was pretty much the same thing, right? We had probably had that stand-down period. Yeah. But that was kind of... Shouldn't he have gone to jail? It's an interesting one, eh? I don't really know the details of that case, but I'm glad we didn't make him our president. Um. <laughs> yeah, true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. I don't know if you know... Um, oh, it's a bad joke, because I have to explain it, but... um. He like did The Apprentice New Zealand. He was oh, like, oh, that's clever, Trump. dude. That's very <laughs> clever. Yeah, that's a good joke. That's a good premise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he when I, I used to work at BP when I was a lot younger, and um, that was around the time that he was made bankrupt. Yeah. And, I remember he would come in with a flash new Jaguar, like when he's he's all over the newspaper and for being bankrupt, and he'd fill it right right to the top. 
petrol like, right. multiple times a week. It's like, you're not bankrupt, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't give a shit. I know my, my parents kind of, because they had an apartment in town and uh, he didn't pay the insurance on anything. Oh. So we had loads and loads of issues with the building because no one was paying for like the repairs to be done. Like the lift would break or something like that. Um, yeah. He, he, yeah. What a fucking nightmare. What's he, I wonder what he's doing now. He's probably living on an island somewhere. Probably. <laughs> I know he was living in Auckland and like his brother was giving him like loads of free shit and stuff like that. The last newspaper article I read about it said that it was something about repossessing the house that his mother was living in and yes. they like threaten the person that was trying to repossess it or something. I, remember, I don't remember yeah. the details, but it was a wild article. Like that was like a few years ago, right? Maybe yeah. like two or three. I think I read that as well. Um, he's kind of faded away from, uh, from the <laughs> books, hasn't he? Jesus. That was a household name back in the day. Sarah yeah. Pisos. Jesus, man. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> I'm sure he's still doing better than most of us. Let's be honest. Honestly, yeah, probably. He was kind of like the whole, he was the, I feel like the, the epitome of like the Auckland rich scene. Yeah. And it's like kind of weird in New Zealand. I feel like if you go to, I guess, parts of America or even Australia, wealth is like very pronounced and people flaunt it. But like in New Zealand, it's, it's obvious that it is, there's some there, but people don't go around like wearing Gucci coats and mm -hmm. having Louis Vuitton bags. And but that guy definitely did. He, he was like, "I'm rich." Like, yeah, look at motherfucker. Me. <laughs> Woo! Look at my jacket. Yeah, he didn't care at all, right? But that's so true because here in New Zealand, we don't really have like a culture of um, yet yeah, flaunting wealth. And yeah. I guess it kind of can like ties back into the whole tall poppy syndrome. I think also probably a lot of wealthy people historically were farmers and... Yep. More modest. Yeah. Yep. You're probably right. Yeah. Here's a weird thing, right? Like in the States, everyone was deemed who was deemed like an essential worker is just paid the shittiest. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Like, oh, they're essential, but they all get paid like shit. I found it wild that the like unemployed people got 600 bucks a week from the government or something and, yeah and then people that were working these shitty essential jobs were um, probably getting less than that actually yeah and there was a big like outrage on it online and it's that to me is like it's it's the example of like the political system just being nonsensical like <laughs> is that an example of that or is that actually an example of uh the because you think about the free market right decides what things are worth yeah technically you know until you get things like monopolies where it's like well actually it's no longer a free market deciding this shit but with that stuff like um <laughs> it's <laughs> i feel weird delving into this because i don't want to become like a political player in any way but like you get like it's it's basically the skill of the labor right and the skill like and unfortunately checkout assistance and everything like that are 100 percent essential and they're they're needed but I think it's not a very high barriers to entry job. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And like anyone, and that's where the money is kind of decided. Like, okay, if you don't want to do it, somebody else can step in and do it. And that's where I do think there is a place for government coming in and, and, and regulating and putting in points at which, uh, just supporting the living wage. Do you know what I mean? Like allowing people to have a quality of life. Yeah, I agree. Um, fundamentally, I think like, if you get to a point, like you have to be really careful in how that is delivered, right? Because if, you, if you're not careful about it, you end up in a situation where essential workers, like what you're saying in America, they're getting less than people who've lost their jobs because of 
COVID and mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, we got to go. Everyone's at home and lockdown earning 600 bucks a week and we got to go to this shitty supermarket and stack some shelves. Yeah. This is in like New Zealand though, right? On the States. Out. Yeah. Because they only have like, they get jack. I got the stimulus check from the States Did as you? well. <laughs> yeah, we get it over here too. It's insane. But that's, that's it. Good. Yeah, but <laughs> here's the th- Imagine that you're in the States, 1.2K. Yeah. And you've been in lockdown for four fucking months, man. But you're right if you like lived in like the WAPs of New Mexico or something. Uh, that, it's like 100 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's fine. <laughs> but Christ man i can't imagine <laughs> i'd be honestly i think if i was in the states right and didn't have a job and that's all the money i had and i was renting i didn't own like a house i probably either put if i had a, if i owned a house i'd probably just default to my mortgage and i'd genuinely consider working on a farm for free and getting money like that and not even money but just free food and accommodation yeah um that's assuming i don't have a family or anything like that and it's a very privileged position to be in being 24 where i can be so mobile and you know physically able to do those kinds of jobs but christ dude i can't that's such a scary man this i was often thinking during covid like what like the state of the world i mean in the pandemic it's still pretty bad right like i haven't even looked up the stats it's kind of like just blends into one at some point but Mm -hmm. um the heart of the panic, I was thinking like, what chances of like living, of all the chances of all the people in the world existing and you're like on this tiny little island in the South Pacific, like no matter what really goes on, there's like a pretty high chance of we're going to be all right. And and that's such a freaking privileged position to be in, like getting up and you've seen the way that our country has handled it. Like now we're on level two, but people don't really seem to care too much i Mm -hmm. mean there's still people out and about enjoying themselves going to bars going to restaurants um and then you look at some countries and it's like three month lockdown like god one month was pretty terrible yeah three months is insane that's a quarter of a year i know i know i i honestly think new zealand just from my perspective is the best country to be in right now and I think for a lot of, as far as like quality of life goes and for me, peace of mind relative towards other countries, the ability to, in my mind, be like, okay, worst comes to worst. I lose my job and I have a, albeit not perfect, but support system from the government. That is so reassuring. That's true. I think, um, the support system from the government could be set up in a way that like encourages people to work. Cause the, the biggest like travesty to me is, um, the incentive. Like you think about if you go from working on the benefit to working a full-time minimum mm. wage job, you might get an extra hundred bucks a week or something. I don't know the exact numbers, but then you've got to think about all the costs of, of actually working. So depending on the job, it might be, you need to buy new clothes or safety gear or tools um you might have to buy new shoes you might have to uh pay for a commute to work and if you add all those extra costs which you need to pay to get to work and then can often be situations where you're actually better off staying on the benefit and totally. um like it's good to have a safety net and we need it but i feel like the way that it is delivered could have a better impact on outcomes in terms of actually encouraging people to work and and also to work jobs that they want to do, you know, rather than having to go to a wins appointment and then they're like, oh, here's a list of shitty minimum wage jobs. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to apply at McDonald's or Countdown, whatever. But 
if you could deliver it in a way that you've got like a standard baseline, or it's UBI essentially, like the Andrew Yang argument, mm-hmm. um, where you've got like that baseline minimum income everyone gets, and then whatever work you do just gets paid on top of that, then it would be an encouraging way for people to get into work that they actually enjoy doing because they know that, um, you know, if they don't stay in that shitty job, they don't have to fill out any forms or go to meetings or apply for jobs that they don't want to do in order to get that support and that safety net. The cost of, there's two things, right? There's the UBI and what's the other one? It's, um, is that the one that greens are proposing? Yes. Fuck. I can't remember. It's like GMI. I think is what it is. What's that? Uh, what does that stand for? Um, Guaranteed minimum income? Yes, guaranteed minimum income. And apparently it provides a lot of the benefits, not all, uh, that the UBI does at a fraction of the cost. Like here in New Zealand, I think you can do the guaranteed minimum income and it costs like $8 billion. So I think the biggest problem I have with the GMI is um, kind of what I alluded to before and that it doesn't encourage people to get out of work because you still have, when you start earning money from employment the GMI goes away. So mm-hmm. you still have... But in a staggered, but staggered as well, right? It's not just like it's a boom, all of a sudden it's gone, like what we currently have, right? We it's Currently it's staggered as well, um, but it's a steep, like it's a real steep stagger. Like the difference between it would be like 100 bucks a week or something for okay. you to like lose it altogether. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely has its flaws as well. Um, but cost is an interesting thing, like... We've, we spend a lot of money on a lot of silly things like the racing industry in this mm-hmm. country. So it's almost like there's these big, strong groups that are lobbying the government and well, it's not almost like that. It is like that. And they're like, get their piece of the pie. But actually that pie could be reallocated in a way that's going to be more beneficial for everyone. So how do you see that in terms of like a UBI? Like what groups are against it? Besides, you know, I guess national uh, and more like act and stuff like that. I think the biggest thing with the UBI um, is cost, like you say. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the biggest argument for being able to fund it would be you could get rid of a lot of the uh, cost in administrating a welfare system. Because if you just had an automatic payment that went out to everyone every week, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't need people in administration jobs having to like, um, you know, process that stuff. essentially ministry of social development could be downsized extensively and all those the money that you'd save from that could then go into the ubi Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess there were also i know top um were proposing the capital gains tax yeah and the flat tax as well yeah Yeah, which would fund the ubi from what i understand um yeah yeah i i I wish I, i need to know more about these things i keep you know i get so I want to be a smarter person to be able to have like these things, these like intense conversations. You, you're clearly a bit more versed on it than I am. I th- think I'm a very political person. Like, um, yeah, I could probably debate politics for hours. Could you? I don't think that's a quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the last guy you want to talk to at the party. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> what, um, yeah, because I guess, uh, what's your thoughts on top then? It's, I'm probably going to vote for them. I'm to a be big honest. fan. It's, I voted yeah. for them last uh, last cycle as well. Um, it's, they made a very interesting point as well, where it's like you know the whole idea of like a wasted vote, where it's like you know a vote for so and so is a wasted vote because they'll never win. Which their response to that, I guess Jeff Simmons' response to that was, um, it's not a wasted vote because even if we do get into the political structure, or we do we don't sorry even if we don't get elected, 
your vote still indicates to the other parties that our policies and our ideas are therefore meaningful. Similar to what Labour does, I think, with Green, yeah. in terms of them adopting a lot of the Greens' policies. Isn't there that thing within the government where they're talking about how uh, the Greens are actually Labour's policy shop? Yeah, I just, the Greens, they have some very interesting policies, eh? Um, but it's a good point. I feel like the whole wasted vote argument is not a good one, mm-hmm. and people should vote for the party that they genuinely believe most aligns with their view. Um, because isn't voting for a party that you don't really agree with, but you just want them to represent you kind of, you're like voting for someone to represent you that doesn't represent you. Whereas it's better to have no representation and have made a stand than it is to have representation, not working for your own best interest. It's almost like if you had a choice between a lawyer that was guaranteed to screw you over in court or, um, representing yourself even though you may not be able to represent yourself with the same knowledge of that lawyer that's probably the better choice and i think like national and labor in this country it's like so much this is what really irks me is it's like they've just passed and repeal a lot of each other's shit and no one gets on and actually makes progress really good example of this is national like we're going to bring back the 90-day trial periods Mm mm-hmm that's what they did in their last terms. So it's like Labour takes them away, National brings them back, Labour takes right, them away, right. National brings them back. So it's like, forget this consistent passing and repealing of the same old shit. Get together, talk about a solution that we have common grounds on and make it work. And I think that's what Top has been really focused on. They're like, hey, we don't really care who we work with. We just want our policies to make a difference and actually improve society. And in my mind, by voting for one of the two major parties, you're kind of just yo-yoing between this, oh, we'll go slightly to the left, slightly to the right, slightly to the left, slightly to the right. Whereas the overarching theme, like housing prices, for example, Labour government has gotten promised big things about it. Kiwi Bill, big failure, obviously. And now housing prices are crazier than they were when National was in power. And so it's kind of like an example of things just not getting done. Would you say, though, to somebody who's... Because I get what you're saying with the whole the analogy of the lawyer. It's like, I'm better off representing myself than guaranteed with a lawyer who's going to fuck me over. But with that analogy, surely you're making a compromise on certain things. And I, I agree with you, because me personally, I think I'll be voting for top as well. But when you have... Um, if you have to choose between, for example, top and labor, and my thinking is I'm going to vote for labor because I feel like they don't fully represent me, but they're going to be in a position to push through some of my ideas rather than voting for somebody who's going to, uh, who, if they were hypothetically in power, are going to push through all of my ideas, but now they're not going to push through any. Surely there's merit to being like, oh, listen, this is better than absolutely nothing. That's fair. And I think if you know what ideas you're going to get pushed through are, mm-hmm. then that could be an idea. You know, maybe labor does align with your values and therefore you some of my values you know what i mean but also there's like what's labor's priority so they have got like all these policies that they want to implement do your top priorities align with theirs Mm -hmm. and so even though your policies may be on the list based on their past performance 
is that something they're going to push after the election or are mm. they going to focus on other things? And I think um, a capital gains tax is probably a really good example of that. A lot of people are in favour of a capital gains tax in this country. Um, there's definitely an argument to make, be made that property is offers a large amount of tax benefits. And they had the tax working group which recommended a capital gains tax and then it was ruled out by Jacinda Ardern who then said that as long as she is a prime minister, she will not implement a capital gains tax. Why? Um, because it's an unpopular policy, basically. Um, even if it's... That's the fucking thing that pisses me off. It's like, even if... You, yeah, I know. It's like, you got to either... I, I get it from a political, political perspective. It's like, either we do the right thing, you know, and uh, lose the next election... Or do the thing that's wrong, win the next election, or have a better position to win the next election, and then push through other things that you're making a compromise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like on, on smaller wins in the future, rather than a big win now, and then not having any of those smaller wins in the future. It's like a broad, yeah, and that's it. They're all thinking, like, am I going to get elected next time? Totally. It's almost like they need to have a broad enough appeal that everyone, almost like what you're saying, people are going to see them as the compromise. Mm -hmm on a broad enough scale or they focus on like a core party support base, push through a lot of stuff and then alienate totally. everyone else. Yeah. I think a lot of people are selfish in the way that they vote as well. Um, mm -hmm. Like they will vote not so much for what benefits the society, but what benefits them personally. And I think that shows in the amount of people that don't support things like higher tax on, um, high income earners there's a lot of people in the middle class that wouldn't be impacted by that they still think it's a bad idea because they have this like goal that they're, totally they're going to be in that you. bracket one day totally and, agree mm -hmm. and that may well be true but um yeah i think people vote for selfish reasons um which isn't necessarily bad rather than thinking about the overall big picture of society um but as well, like my idea of a government, and surely this is probably a fair representation, rather than having two big parties with like 40% each and then a few minor little parties in there, imagine like 10 parties that had 10% each and then five of them would have to work together and form a government. And mm -hmm. then when the laws got passed, it would be a genuine compromise because you've got that representation of different factions within society and they all get around a table they all hash it out and they say right this is the policy and then at the end of it some people will be like well we don't think that's a good idea others will be like well we don't think this is a good idea but ultimately everyone got something that they wanted out of it i think i feel, Grant like, that would result, I feel like that would result in the deadlock though don't you think i think nothing gets done yeah it's a, it's an argument that it could do <laughs> but then look at um America, like they have two parties and they still get resulted in deadlocks. And yeah, that's true. Filibusters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Did you hear about that one filibuster or the guy who was like, you know, went for 24 hours and like he <laughs> peed on stage in like a bottle or something like that? Like he couldn't leave, so he just filibustered the whole time. How insane is fucking that? That's pretty funny though, but just mad. <laughs> one of my favorite things is on YouTube. There's like a lo-fi Bernie Sanders filibuster. <laughs> 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 what a good idea. Is he filibuster for how long? Like eight hours. It's Jesus. like eight hours. It's just like lo-fi tunes in the background. What does he talk about during that time? Oh, filibusters. So it's like a, 
you're basically doing a never-ending speech on that issue. You know when you're at university and you start, you're like a hundred words short of like a sure. word count, so you just put like filler words in there. That's like to me what listening to a filibuster is like. Right. So like they've got no substance that they actually want to say, but they've got to do this speech so that the other party can't pass their bill. It's like <laughs> half the work meetings I go into for my job. Which is like, this is so pointless. <laughs> There's <laughs> a website <laughs> called expensivemeeting.com and you type in the average salary of everyone in the meeting, how many people they are, and you hit start, and it will tell you the cost of that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> What a good idea. <laughs> That's so classic. That's literally, I honestly think in like most office environments, here's my thing too. It's like, you know when you, there's that classic thing of when you're driving past a bunch of guys working on the side of the road and you see like four of them just standing around and one working and we're all just like, oh, look at that. That's so fucking bad. They're all so lazy. But then you go into an office and you see the exact same shit, but it's just less visible. Do you know what I mean? Like I honestly think working in an office, you get maybe eight hour day, three hours of work done <laughs> but, you know like solid work like you know everything else is just fluff we have meetings about meetings about meetings you know or we have work discussions about work like what the I, fuck is going on i feel like the public sector is like way particularly more right. bad for that right like, i <laughs> totally agree i think it's very much the case and i think the reason being is there's no uh, inherent there are deadlines but there's no inherent like this business will fail if we do not do this do you know what I mean worst comes to worst but at the same time like do I think those things shouldn't exist because we talk about a UBI isn't that like a quasi form of like employing people for jobs that don't necessarily need to be done yeah it kind of is but like um, I guess it all comes back to you know we kind of need to have like an honest conversation about what money is and I think people um see it as like wealth right like oh, if you have a lot of money you're rich but really like in, in the fundamental point of view it should just be a means of exchange like um i guess a table is like a good example if you make this table it might take you what, like 10 hours or something mm -hmm. nice table and then whatever you can sell it for is like the value represents the value that you put into making that table right but then when you add a whole bunch of debt, which is essentially money that's added, but has never had that intrinsic value proposition behind it. It dilutes the value of the actual work that's been undertaken. So if you just said, oh, we're going to pay everyone everything um, and we're not going to raise taxes, government deficit would just go up and up and up. Like I, I guess in America is a good, good example of this um, where they haven't had a, they haven't balanced their books and, God, since like the seventies or something. Mm. Um, maybe Bill Clinton did it, but um, the ultimate thing here is if you add money to a country, you're just going to end up with more expensive goods because, um, like, say I make this coffee, and then today this coffee is worth a dollar because you have a dollar, and then tomorrow the government gives five other people a dollar, then they're going to be able well, say five other people five dollars then mm -hmm. one of them is going to be able to be like i'll give you two dollars for that coffee but you've still only got the dollar because you weren't paid by the government you did work yeah but that's assuming like you know supply is scarce right yeah i guess the supply so basically if you are producing something then that thing has a value but if mm -hmm. you add money into existence without producing something oh, okay. then it's just diluting the value of everything else that was already produced 
Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where we are now is like you look at house prices, there's a very large correlation to the money supply. So money in the money supply and house prices. And it's like almost a stark comparison. You like watch money in the money supply like this, house prices like this. Right. And so when you think about it in that way, it's almost like the value of stuff is not going up in price because it's worth more. It's because there's more dollars. Therefore, people can make higher offers. Mm, mm, I see what you mean. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you think about that in like a government sense of a proposal of like just implementing a UVI without appropriately funding it, then you could end up in a situation where basically things just go up in price because everyone has more of this currency, right. which makes it worth less. So how do you prevent that from happening? Um, taxation is essentially how you would prevent that from happening. Um, so you tax people on the money they've already been given? Well, in the, that sense, taxation. I mean, really, it should be like not borrowing. Not borrowing money would avoid it from happening in the first place. Okay. Um, but taxation is a way of controlling that because if you tax someone money from the government, so the government says you have to give me money, the government can then spend that on um, services, but they also use that to pay down the debt. And by paying down the debt, you reduce some of the money supply that's in circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, interest rates are also a way that it's controlled. So the economy can be like expanded and contracted through interest rates. So if interest rates are low, people can afford to buy, well, to borrow more money because the same repayment is going to be less. So the bank will say, well, Interest rates were 8%. You can only afford this much. Interest rates are 2%. We're going to give you a lot more money to borrow. Mm -hmm. Um, But if interest rates go up, people can afford to borrow less. Less money being borrowed means that there's less money being introduced into the supply. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've got a question here then. Let's say like um, very simplistic version. A bank loans you $1,000, right? Um, they have that $1,000, right? And let's say that $1,000 is the only money that's in existence, right? But they have like a 10% interest on that $1,000. Where am I supposed to get that 100 bucks, let's say 10% a month? You know, where, where does that money come from? Is that just the, the government being like, here's more money? Well, the government, so... If because you, that's essentially if you, what we have, right? Because like interest rates are putting value or just you know, hypothetically creating more money in the future. So that's, yeah. So that's basically illustrated um, interest rates, how they take money out of the economy because you have to get that money from somewhere else. So that might be right. from your from your job or whatever. But if you paid back all the debt in existence, there would be a total of, like money, money is debt created. So mm-hmm. essentially money is created by debt in our current system. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you paid back all the money in existence, the balance sheet would be zero. So every dollar that anyone has is owed to somebody else. But, that, but how's that? How's that work though? Because there's interest on the debt that's already out there, which is extra money on yeah. the original value that was put. So wouldn't it be like the the, the balance would be like plus something or or, or, ne- I don't, or negative something? It would. Well, actually, that's a good point. The total money in the supply would be zero, but mm-hmm. the outstanding money owed would still exist because yes. of the interest. Would yeah. Be, yeah, exactly. And so how does that work? How is that even? 
<laughs> Isn't that just like a, a made up system then, essentially? Where it's this is why growth needs to happen. Um, because if growth, if growth, the economy stops growing, yeah, there won't be more yeah money to pay back these debts and this is like the absurdity of it all like if you actually break it down and it's a really it's a hard topic to get into um in a way that like i feel like i know what i'm saying but i feel like i'm not um able to explain able it. to explain yeah, it very sure. well um it's like okay i mean everyone's probably heard of that whole <laughs> conspiracy theory about like banks creating money out of nothing and that sort of thing um it gets a lot of points right. Mm-hmm. It's a shame it then goes off on a big tangent and says the world is owned by like Lizardmen or whatever. Right, but right. Like a, the the fundamental. What's the conspiracy stuff, theory? What's the theory? This is like the whole um, the New World Order thing. So sure. like the Illuminati own the world. They created the Federal Reserve in 1913 on Jekyll Island, mm-hmm. um, and they basically print money out of nothing and the Federal Reserve is privately owned. Isn't isn't the Federal Reserve privately owned though? Isn't it like a weird thing where it's not actually a government entity in the US? I, th- I believe so. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Um, but people, like when a bank lends money, because banks do create money, mm-hmm. but they do it by way of um, lending on deposits. So like if you deposit $1,000 into a bank, say, they in the olden days would pay you interest rate on that. Mm-hmm. Um, now it might be like 0.1% interest or something. Um, but the way that they're able to pay that interest to you is by lending that money to somebody else. Uh, but hypothetically, that should be the same interest on yours, right? Like the e- one-to-one. So the bank basically takes the difference. So mm-hmm. there's like a margin there. So like say they lend out at 4% and they pay 2.5% on the turn deposit, sure. that 1.5% difference will is be the bank's. the bank's margin. Right. Um, but the thing is, you could go into the bank tomorrow and take that money out, right? Mm-hmm. But that's already been lent to someone else. Sure. So, and what happens if everybody wants to take their money out? And this is where the banks were collapsing, right? And that's more where so, the bank run happens. Yeah. yeah. And then even more so during in 2008 where people were actually trading on money they didn't have either. So it wasn't even a lending issue. It was more just like a speculative investment kind of issue, right? Yeah. So 2008, there's, there's like a lot of options, what they call like stock options, like derivatives. Mm-hmm. And a derivative in like a very simplistic way, it's like saying, oh, in... Two months, say say you run a big oil company. It's a good example because oil went to negative. So like two months time, I'm going to need a hold to the shipment of oil for my company to continue running. Um, so if you think the price of oil is going to go up in two months time, you can put an option, which is basically I will buy the oil in two months time for this price um, and I can take delivery of it. So say the price of oil today is like $200 and in two months time, the price of oil becomes $400. If you buy it at today's price for delivery in two months, you're going to make a profit of $200 per barrel. And I mean, that's not what oil costs, but just an example. Um, If the price goes down, then you're going to have lose money, lost money on that Mm -hmm. option. So what happened in 2008 is... Instead of that being used for like a supply chain reason, people trade these just like they trade stocks, bonds, whatever. Um, and so big companies were basically betting on, well, they were packaging these options up to say, here's a bunch of 
loans and because the US housing market is so strong, it's going to keep going up in value. This is like a sure investment, top quality, triple A rated investment. It's not going to fail. And they packaged all these up into mortgage-backed securities, sold it to investors. Um, and this was like pension funds, mum and dad investors. And then the whole market collapsed and everyone just lost all their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in, we can see the oil price going into negative. That kind of reflects this as well, like, what can happen if things go wrong because if you say bought oil to take delivery and the price went to negative how does a how does the price of something go to negative how does that work so the the contract is to take physical possession of the oil and then therefore it costs money to store the oil yeah right and that's where the negative comes in so if you're like a trader in new york and Mm -hmm. you trade these derivatives you probably don't want to take delivery of 10,000 barrels of oil or Mm -hmm. how many oil you probably can't physically do that so what happened in that situation is so many people had contracts open that they wanted to get rid of because they couldn't take delivery of oil that the market said well we need got all this extra oil in supply we need to deliver it and drop it off places so you have to pay us to take your oil because you said two months ago that you wanted to take delivery of this oil for that price on the day. Right. And now you've got nowhere to store it. So we'll keep the oil, but you have to pay us for it. Wow. So it's people who, that's the issue, right? Because it's people who have no intention of buying the product at all. They're just speculating and their sole existence is to make profit on the difference. Exactly. So they're using these which in in theory could be very useful for a supply chain to have certainty over the cost on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And then they then becomes like a token value because it's just being traded without any intent of actually taking delivery of the goods. Yeah. How wild. Yeah. And it just, I think that's where people start making the argument of kind of capitalism's gone a bit haywire. Yeah. You know, where it's like people's sole existence and they operate in a world of money and it's sole existence is to make more money on money. My biggest, um, I always put this out to people, like people that really don't like capitalism. And I mean, it's no system's perfect. There's obviously a lot of problems, but like propose a solution. Like, sure. it's not, you know, the, um, are you part of that Bernie Sanders dank meme stash? I know the ones, but I don't, I'm not part of it, no. So that group was like massive in 2016 when Bernie was like first onto the scene. And I was a huge Bernie supporter back then. And in the last four years, it's just morphed into this like quasi-socialist yeah. group. And it's all like these memes like, eat the rich, kill the billionaires. Yeah. And it's like, okay, say we did that. We got rid of all the rich people. What then? And that question stumps a lot of people. Like no one's thought past the, this is bad. We need to change it to how, how this actually how do works. We, how do we go forward? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people's answers to that, I find would like in reality leave a lot of people to starve or whatever. Cause like if you're in a Western country, you're in a pretty privileged position that you're going to be able to go to the shops and there's going to be food there. Or, you know, you turn on the tap and, and water's going to come out. But the what people don't understand is how complex everything that sits behind that in the economy is mm-hmm. to get those foods on the shelf. You know, there's got to be a farmer that grows it. Um, the farmer processes the food, creates a, a raw flour that gets sent to a bread factory that gets made into bread, um, and then it gets packaged, it gets shipped, it gets put on the shelves, and then sold to you. So if you break down the systems behind that, then 
you have to replace them with new systems. And um, yeah, I don't know, like what, what's a, a good solution for changing capitalist society? Because we get a lot of stuff right. I mean, um, less people, well, this is pre-COVID, so mm-hmm. the stat may be wrong, but I read less people now in terms of a percentage of the population are living in poverty than at any other time in human history. And that's like a pretty, percentage or a, a, like a per capita basis. Per capita yeah. basis. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think what people are doing is striving for a better system, but not really able to provide one. And I think there's this, like, I think there's that real argument of, I think a lot of people, if you go so far left, you end up going into like, you know, this, a communist like structure where the government kind of takes over and controls everything, which does not work from what we've seen as far as... First of all, I think the real issue is we have like these huge mega structures of uh, the way that society is laid out and we're not really equipped to deal with that. Like human beings, tribes of 100, you know, 150. And it's so easy to help the person who's not doing nearly as well in those situations. You know, somebody breaks their back, you know, when they're out hunting, the community is able to support that one person. But as you get it on a much bigger, bigger scale, you get more and more people who are disenfranchised and we're not really equipped to live in this huge, larger structure that we currently have. As far as like the bigger system and like the solution to what we, I don't know. I, I do not know. But it always weirds me out when you're, even in the States now, you're starting getting people who are openly identifying as like Maoists, you know? Yeah. Without fucking understanding any of the context behind just the fucking history and the persecution and the overall national sense of sadness and anxiety that took place during the Maoist period and the revolution and fucking everyone getting called out and just the abysmal state of the quality of life in China in the 50s was terrible. People were starving to death, dying, you know, and riots in the streets and everything like that. And China has only kind of developed into what it is now. And I would say on average, the quality of life has risen from what I understand through introducing semi- capitalist-like structures. Huge government oversight in all of those. Um, but yeah, but nonetheless. It's a bit scary for me that that seems to be the tilt that people are shifting to. And I think especially like when we've seen now this year a lack of leadership from the US, it's probably the first major world event in since World War II, really, where the US has not been a world leader. Mm-hmm. Like they're... Um, response there's oh, it was an article i was reading um about this it was like the decline of was the it by the US independent yeah, yeah it was. i know the one i think i read that too and it was like the first time where china where the u.s had to wait on aid from china yeah mm-hmm. and um like but what's the alternative here like if it's not like the 1930s where you had like the u.s is sitting in reserve can come and save the day at the end of it or it's like if we shift towards China, that's not a good place for the world to be in because of the way that their government conducts themselves. Like, Can I just ask, by what metric, though? Because quality of life in China, for most people, is higher than I would say in some other countries. That's fair. Freedoms are definitely a bit more limited. But at what point are you willing to give up your freedoms for a higher quality of life? Okay, that's a good question. If you are living in a not-so-good situation, I agree. And maybe that... I never thought of it from this perspective, but it's probably quite privileged of me to say that our freedoms getting eroded under any circumstances is a terrible idea. But um, 
like my view is there has to be that Western civilization ideal of freedom is really important in terms of creating humanity that's going to move forward. Because if you look at the Chinese society and what the government is doing over there, they're literally suppressing their own people and they're making it so everyone has to contribute towards like one path and one culture. And I think like the, have you heard of the, the Uyghur camps Mm -hmm. in, I think it's Xinjiang province, province, but yeah. Um, there's a really good vice piece on it. It's about half an hour long and they actually travel there. Um, and that's like crazy. So these people are getting taken away at night and put into these re-education camps and the kids are being taken to uh, state-run schooling facilities and basically being taught how to be Chinese, um, Han Chinese culture. And all of their original identity from being Uyghur Muslims is like completely taught out of them. Like they're not allowed to read the Quran. They're not allowed to have any of that identity of what their people and their ancestors um, came from. And the overarching theme is they basically want everyone to be on the same page, the same opinion so that the society can be aligned to the same point of view. Mm -hmm. And that's like their view of how to progress things forward. And there's other things they're doing, like the social credit system. They pay like uh, oldly retired people to basically spy on their communities and then call out any transgressions or misgivings of what's mm-hmm. happening. Um, like law that they pass, which means that if you or I say, just for this podcast, talking a bit of shit about the CCP right now, if we transited through China, we could be arrested under their laws mm-hmm. and detained because of um, like actions against the Chinese Communist Party or something. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty scary situation to be in where you're going to basically hand over all your freedoms to the government, but you also lose the ability to hold that government to account in terms of its ways of treating other people. And if that is going to result in re-education camps, um, then the world really has gone so far from where we were during the 1930s and 40s, the reasons that World War II was fought in the first place. Like, I feel like if you got a bunch of World War II veterans in a room and you mentioned to them about the Uyghur camps in China, they would just be devastated because that's literally what they fought against for the freedom of virtues. But now it's almost like... I would disagree, though, because they also have those same camps with Japanese in the States. Yeah, I this that's a complex issue, <laughs> right? Like you internment know. camps. But yeah. there's a there was a difference. Like I'm not saying that that is good. That was t- equally as terrible. But they didn't put people into gas chambers and kill them. You know, is China doing that? I uh, not confirmed, but right. um, there. Yeah, we can both agree that it's bad. It's, and it's bad. Wrong. I think. Um, so are, are you saying the? relinquishing of freedom is a slippery slope. Is that kind of what you're saying? It's a slippery slope to like totalitarian control. So no, so no infringements on, here's my thing. Like here in New Zealand, we've given up the freedom to have a semi-automatic rifle. Yeah. And I would think that's a good freedom to give up on. But some people would make the argument that that's one step. And then we go to the next step and the next step. But for me, I am willing to give up that freedom for a safer society as a whole. That's a good, it's a fair point. I think there's a long way between like giving up the freedom to own a semi-automatic rifle and like 
having your face tracked every single place that you go, which is what kind of what happens in China. But it's under the same notion. Do you know what I mean? It's under the notion of safety for the society that you live in, right? But is it, at some point, it's not safety for the society that you live in. It, there's like a, a turning point where it becomes safety for the government and the yeah, structure. Safety for and the I government to guess that's where the argument in the states. Power. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's where the argument in the states comes because the whole right to bear arms really comes. I think a lot of people use the argument, and maybe rightfully so. I don't know uh, that um, the right to bear arms is used to challenge the government. Is that right? Like, I, I, I to to prevent an, a t- tyrannical government coming in and. It's like a, yeah, it's like the ultimate value of freedom. And this is, um, I used to be like very, very anti-gun and um, like I kind of see the other side of it, um, which is that legal, like safe gun owners should not be punished for the actions of a few people. But you're right. At some point you have to say how many kids are going to die in Mm -hmm. school shootings before we actually understand that there's a problem here um but i think the american ideal of freedom it's so it's it's like very different like in new zealand we almost just like want to be able to live in in safety and peace and can seems like contribute to society but america's is like this giant ideal like you can be whoever you want to be and no one's going to stand in your way. Like you are the ultimate individual. No government's going to stand <laughs> yeah, in your way. No I think government. not, no, but a private organization can, you know, cause you can essentially enslave yourself to a bank yeah. in the States, you know, or the idea of like, I don't want to have to have my taxes pay for someone else's healthcare. However, I need to work a fucking job that I don't like to get the insurance that I need for my healthcare. I think the um like the bankruptcy we touched on before in the states uh student loan debt isn't covered mm-hmm. by bankruptcy and that's that, insane right you're just stuck with that for your that's like in, literally to me that seems like indentured servitude mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. you're basically yeah. oh, you have to pay this back even got no choice and it's like a massive disservice to the younger generation like who want to better themselves and the the criminal thing about it is it's like a disproportionately impacting people that don't come from privileged backgrounds who are less likely to study anyway and you know they have to take less favorable rates and loans because they're less credit worthy mm-hmm. um and they're much more likely to get into trouble with it just just for wanting to better themselves and that's an insane to me like i think having interest-free student loans in new zealand is a great policy mm-hmm. like we are lucky that anyone can get guaranteed for this government loan. They don't have to pay interest on it unless they go overseas. And there's like no forms that they have to fill out. Um, It's not impacted by your credit rating or your social status or where you come from. It's just, here's a a government loan. Mm. Um, And I guess in return, we pay a little bit higher tax on that. But um, yeah, from a freedom point of view, I feel like, you are right. There has to be some sort of freedoms that are given up to maintain a safe and structured society. But by and large, like people shouldn't be free to express themselves, their beliefs and their cultures without fear of retribution. People should be. Should, should be. be. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And in places like China, that's simply not true. You have to conform to that one way of thinking mm-hmm. or you are very much persecuted by the government, but also by 
um, peers that are influenced by the government. Like if you educate people that this is the only way to go, then it creates like a society of distrust of anyone else that is trying to follow a different path. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, it's such a mammoth thing in, in China as well, where it's like, I wouldn't even know where to start by, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't know what the whole, I, I, yeah, never, I've only, I've only been to China once too, so I can only. Where did you go? I went to uh, Shanghai. Oh, was it? It was cool. I was there for like a week. Uh, and then I went to Hong Kong as well. Sorry, I went to Hong Kong and then Shanghai. Um, Hong Kong was cool. Big fan of Hong Kong. But it was like, so everything's so expensive in Hong Kong. That it's like, you can't really enjoy it. It's like going to Singapore when you're broke. It's like, well, what the fuck am I going to do here? I felt that about Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. Uh, I went to America. It was like my last weekend. I was in Vegas and I was like, this was really cool, but I wish I had more money. <laughs> I wish I had a million dollars yeah. because it's it's catered towards just balling out yeah you know and if you don't have that you're like all right well i'm counting my nickels and dimes here and really what do you most if you don't have money the really only thing you're doing is just eating it's a weird thing isn't it like um that almost like excess is celebrated in a way like yeah like in normal parts people are like you know modesty is generally considered to be a good trait and people with large egos are like not that um i guess they're, they're probably still like they got friends but that you know they're they'll be like oh that guy's a bit arrogant or whatever bit of a douche yeah yeah but then you go to places like vegas and it's like it's like the who's who of sure who's got the biggest wallet you so know is los like, angeles i think california for the most part i've been to los angeles i did not like it didn't like it it was just everything was very egotistical yeah and i felt like when i was talking to anybody it was all fake like you ever been to like a networking event before um only in new zealand <laughs> what did you think yeah it's like everyone's very cautious about what they want to put forward yeah. i think people no one would go into a networking event and be like this is my genuine opinion on everything totally and that's i yeah i feel like at some point people have lost the ability to agree to disagree in a lot of areas of society i think so too that's a very good point yeah you can't have like a, a civil disagreement with somebody about something yeah without you hating them well even the amount of people that won't be friends with someone that has an opposing view of them is crazy to me it's mm -hmm. like surely that's what makes us human is our ability to have differences of differences of opinions different perspectives on things and um i guess it comes back to this whole like left right thing it's like instead of it being a round table can we find middle ground? It's like all of my stuff and none of your stuff or all of my stuff and none of your stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no compromise. Yeah. Yeah. People are identifying by, I guess, yeah, their sense of, well, I guess you should be identifying by your sense of right and wrong, but not being able to see the other side, I guess. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, people are more polarized than they ever have been now as well. It's um, social media makes it so easy too, right? Very. Like the whole uh -huh. cancel co cancel culture is getting a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so easy to yeah, it really is. And I think what I was having a discussion with somebody about this recently. Like, do you think a company has? I think companies have ethical uh, responsibilities, right? But do I think they should be leading the charge uh, in the social space? Or do I think they should be merely reflecting what society wants? But then what portion of society are you reflecting? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Cause like, are you, are you, are you going to be, cause for example, like a tech company, you're obviously going to reflect, you know, 
Californian culture, which is very left-leaning, very liberal. Um, but at the same time, you can also see where they come into the sense of like our responsibility. There was like an economist in the 80s. I can't remember. He was part of the Reagan administration. And he came up with this school of thought where a company's responsibility is solely to its shareholders. It's Milton Friedman? Yes, yes. A company's responsibility is solely to make a profit and to its shareholders and no one else, right? And so what we see now is like this weird mix of like a mixture of that where like we see these companies, I think, saying they're acting ethically when in reality they're actually responding in terms of their bottom line. Yeah, this is a good point. I think like uh, as well, we're seeing a shift in the way that people want to buy products. Like people would prefer to buy products from companies that do act ethically and potentially, particularly from like an environmental specialist, they want to buy, um, sorry, perspective. They want to buy products that, are made by companies that are better caretakers of our environment. And mm-hmm. um, that's probably a really good example of that shift that we've seen from companies that are only about making the bottom dollar. Because you think about like the, the 80s and the 90s, like corporations would have just been wild west. I mean, ExxonMobil, prime example, right? Like they knew about climate change for so long mm-hmm. and yet they just basically put all this stuff that they knew from their own research under the carpet in order to continue selling fossil fuels and act like in the public's view that there wasn't an issue going on with Mm -hmm. it and they hadn't done climate modeling that had shown disastrous consequences. But I would like to think that you couldn't get away with doing the same thing today. You probably could. (laughs) I think people do. I think they do. I think, um, just depends on how good your media company behind <laughs> yeah. you is, right? And like how much you can like really kind of tailor your own image. Yeah, I, it's, it's 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 a bizarre one. I don't know. I think with um, I'm not smart enough with cancel culture to really. I, I don't think I can really like lend a, a valid insight to it. I think there's like a point where I don't. I don't know. Actually, I have no idea. I just don't want to get fucking canceled. Like Donald Trump's presidency, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? Cancel, hashtag cancel Trump 2020. Yeah. He's like uncancelable. He's just not going. <laughs> if he wins again too, holy shit. Imagine that. I feel like, okay, this is like America's a great place. It's got some really great people. How did the two choices to be president end up being Joe Biden or Donald Trump. 500 million people and those are the best two. Like, I think it's 360 in the States, right? Oh, 360, 360 or something something like that. But I think um, that's a clear example of political parties deciding who we get to vote for rather than the people deciding who we get to vote for. You I know? agree, yeah. Mm, the fact that they sidelined Bernie Sanders both times. Like, I, yeah, I honestly believe Bernie would have won if he ran for president. I think he would have too, especially with coronavirus. Um, like that, if he'd got the nomination during COVID, that would have been like the perfect storm for a socialist president to get elected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people compare Bernie to FDR quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some controversial reasons there as well. Um, FDR certainly did a lot of interesting, questionable stuff back in his day. Mm. Um, but the reality is FDR came to the forefront in America during a time of crisis after the Great Depression, World War II. And you think about the sort of policies that he implemented, like the New Deal, um, that is like 
a massive, massive change and shift in political thinking at the time um, and led to like a much bigger government that had more control of the people than, than what the federal government in America previously had. Mm. And so on that sort of same mandate, which is similar to what Bernie Sanders is running on, you know, that we need to shift the government's role from basically overseeing regulations to actually being a provider of healthcare is probably a really good example of that. Um, it, it could be comparable. And I think because we're in a time of crisis now, it would have just been like the awesomest platform to carry him to win. Yeah, definitely. I mean, their whole campaign is like, you know, I'm not Trump. You know, <laughs> yeah. which is just, like, have yeah, you heard, uh, like, have you seen many interviews with Biden? It seems like he's dodging. Um, yeah. He doesn't need to be like crazy radical i don't think to even really doesn't need to do anything out of the box to win right he's got like no it's, it's not seen not inspiring though, no like, he's seen like speech? i'm not trump <laughs> it was not the but it was like the uh, the dnc in his speech during that and like you see compare it to obama's when he was the keynote speaker in like 2004 i think it was um when he was endorsing mccain to go against bush i can't i don't actually fully remember anyway but Obama was amazing. Like yeah. Speaking prowess, just like one of the best public speakers I've ever seen. And then you see Biden, it just seems like so fake commercial watered down. And uh, Do you think like if Biden wins, it's really just going to be like four years of shadow Obama? Because I've thought about this, right? Like they, they've, they work together. Mm-hmm. He was obviously vice president at, while Obama was president. Mm. And I'm sure that he'd be like on the phone to Obama like, Barack. Yeah. What do I do, man? Like, I would love that. I, but I do think he's just going to be more of like the status quo. Like nothing crazy is going to change. And then I honestly think you'd get another more moderate Republican who would win next. Yeah. You know, I don't know if Trump would. I haven't. Dude, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I, me personally, I, but I didn't think Trump was going to win the most recent election. I was, was, I put money on it. I was like, this is yeah. a fucking win. Yeah. I never paid the guy. I had, a <laughs> gut, I had a gut feeling that he was going to just because Hillary is such an unlikable person. Yeah. True. <laughs> I just thought people would be willing to compromise on, but here's the thing. Like how it was a like hundred something million people didn't even vote in the States. Yeah. You know, just the paradox of not voting is some people are like, Oh, it doesn't matter. My mm-hmm. vote's not worth it anyway. But because so many people think like that, your yeah. vote becomes worthless because you make it so by not exercising totally. it. But if everyone in that, yeah, it's like New Zealand statistics. I think I post this every single election year, like a few months out or a few weeks out from the actual date, which is in the last election, more people didn't vote than voted for mm-hmm. the winning party. That's insane. So if all those people that didn't vote got together and said, we're going to vote for this new party and we're going to start a party and it's going to be called, I don't know, the random party, that party would be in government now mm-hmm. as the majority holder in a government. And how can you say your vote is worthless if you're not exercising it with statistics like that? It's insane. Yeah. And yet everyone has like a political opinion. That's what also pissed me. Like, sh- shut the fuck up. You didn't even vote. To be fair, I only voted in the primaries for the upcoming election. I didn't want to vote for Clinton. Uh, sorry, the, the most recent one. And they make it incredibly difficult to vote in the States. Yeah. Very, very hard for me to get my... I've had to... I've been going back and forth with somebody for the past month just trying to get my vote. I can't... I can't... can't vote in the runoffs. 
Um, so I don't even, I can't even remember what, it, it was my first year being able to vote in the States, the most, the previous one, and I don't, th- I didn't vote, I was bad, I'm part of the fucking problem, bro, I'm part of the problem, but I've learned, and I've become better, and that's what life's all about, <laughs> but it's very complex to get your vote processed from overseas in yep. the States, here in New Zealand, we do a great job of making it very easy, very accessible. Um, you see, like, the, all the memes of the voting golem, like, what's the voting golem, I don't even know what that is, like the orange guy? Oh, yeah, the green man, like the genderless guy or something like that. Yeah, I know the one. He's great. <laughs> is he still like the, the mascot? He is, yeah. He? yeah. It's like the best marketing campaign that it wasn't election bad. Like, <laughs> it wasn't terrible. I mean, like, how else are you going to appeal? But the thing is, is like young people don't vote the most. And yeah. but at the same time, like, I feel like in Wellington, we live in a really big bubble. Very, very just microcosm of a very liberal microcosm you know we are the capital eight and i think that like everyone here by and large is very much for the government probably mm-hmm. because of the fact that they are surrounded by people that work for the government and yeah that's a very good point one thing i did because you work for obviously a, a government department mm-hmm. one thing i did was curious to know is like doesn't every th- like time a new government gets in do you, your department like have to just completely do a u-turn and change direction so <laughs> me i haven't been there long enough to see a transition because yep. i came in during a current government system but from what i understand that does happen quite a bit like you can have yeah yeah, yeah just do like a full u-turn or things get dropped um totally that's totally. like to to me the most frustrating thing is like seeing millions of dollars get much wasted, money gets wasted on yep. that it's like a p- it's almost like a pendulum swing like ooh, we're gonna do this then we're gonna do that and yeah totally sorry. it happens it happens quite a bit i think um but that's the structure that we live in and i think that is like the best that we can do and that's why it's so important to get things through before like the next term rolls around but i think labor is a shoe-in for this election i feel like uh i'd know. be shocked i mean i personally feel like national the policies they've been coming out with are like why like mm-hmm. the whole oh we're gonna get rid of compulsory breaks it's like who 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 would actually think that that is a good idea i would feel <laughs> awkward being a business owner and then being like national saying that even though it benefits me it'd be like really not comfortable with that <laughs> <laughs> you know please don't do that the other thing is like if you create a workplace environment where people love their jobs mm. they tend not to take long breaks like totally because they want to get involved and and continue doing their work or they'll tend to be a lot more flexible around when they do take their breaks and when they do take their breaks it it's because it's needed. It's not because they want to escape their job. It's because they've been working hard all day and they just want to have some time away from it. I think a lot of people do that because it's uh, escapism. Yeah. I think, I think for, for the most people, I, w- I would like to know how many people enjoy the job that they occupy in. That's a good what question. What do you reckon? Do you reckon it's like 20% of people enjoy the job that they do? I reckon it would be something depressingly low like that. I reckon as well. <laughs> I, on- I honestly do. And I think a lot of people do a job pay the mortgage, you know, pay the bills. Isn't that crazy? Like the need for security in terms of having a roof over your head mm-hmm. and paying your bills basically outweighs your desire to achieve your ultimate goal. Like, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people even know what their real goals are because they've been told so much that like buying a house, doing X, Y, Z is the next logical step and what you need to do, which is bad. Cause it's not really like how <laughs> thing I will say, I actually read an article about, um, like the benefits of home ownership over renting and there is a lot and um, where can people find that article um and what's it titled it is 
probably saved on my computer. I'm not <laughs> publishing it anywhere. Um, but uh, I can give it to you. Yeah, and, that'd be yeah. cool. I, but what are what? Because I feel like in New Zealand, there's this glorified ideal of buying a house and then it's security when in reality if you took two hundred thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars which is a deposit on a house chucked it into a dividend bearing stock you'd be just as bet just as equally well off you can't live in a dividend bearing stock though. no you can't live in a dividend <laughs> but you can live in a house that you rent that you're paying the interest so for example you can rent a house right uh, sure you don't have any assets at the end of the day but let's say you put two hundred thousand dollars into a uh, some company that's company XYZ and they pay a dividend of 80 cents, a, uh, 80 cents every six months, right? 200,000. I don't know what that is. 200,000, a dollar 60 compounding interest. Let's take that into account as well. You're actually going to be making roughly 30, 40, no, not 34. I fuck knows dude, but you're going to be making a decent amount of money, right? Yeah. That same amount of money can go towards paying for your rent. Yeah. Or you can buy a house put that deposit in, your mortgage is going to be, the interest on your mortgage is probably going to be roughly the same as the rent that you're paying. Yeah. Right? But your stocks are appreciating in value. And I guess the argument here is your house also appreciates in value. So this is where you're making your money. But it's almost the exact same thing, but you don't have any debt. You have a liquid asset versus a non, so a liquid asset being the stocks and the non-liquid being the house. So I, guess there's a, a couple of points so um like if you think about the the okay the debt arguments are a really good one so debt people are often like i don't want to get into debt uh-huh. i'm like very insistent people are very insistent that they don't want to touch a single cent of borrowing right mm-hmm. but if you look at the way that the wealthy operate debt is actually a really useful tool especially at the moment when your interest rates are low so if you have like a two hundred thousand dollar deposit say you put 200 you put that into shares your shares will go up in value. So you'll get value based on the $200,000 that you put in. So say the shares go up by 20% and you'll have 240 grand worth. Mm -hmm. If you put that $200,000 down on a million dollar house, you borrow the other 800K from the bank, that house goes up by 20% at the same time. You get the full 20% gain on a million dollars because you you own the whole house even though you own the 800 grand. Mm -hmm. So even though you've made 40K on your stocks, you made 200K on your house. So you're trading with leverage essentially. Yeah, Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So property being favorable is in New Zealand because banks, you go to a bank and you say, I've got 200K deposit on a buy a million dollars of shares. They'll be like, (laughs) why is that? Um, It's just seen as a lot more risky. Like, um, because property historically has been such a short bet in New Zealand and it's not taxed in terms of capital gains. So that's another favorable reason like in america i think they have property taxes um here it's like you can make nine million dollars on a mansion sale and you wouldn't pay a single cent of tax on that it's it's absurd um so banks see property as a really secure way of getting their money back so if something goes wrong chances are that that house can be sold and the bank will be able to recover its assets Mm -hmm. now the shares are not viewed the same way because if the company that is you know the company that you own shares and goes under or goes down in value the bank may not be able to sell that asset back and make the same profit and therefore Mm -hmm. the losses it's basically seen as a higher risk lend than lending against a a residential property right i get you interesting dude i gotta wrap this up that's all good man this has been really good yeah we we went for 
a while. This is probably the longest, one of the longest ones I've done. What Should is we this see? Time? 12.45. Shit, that's decent, eh? An hour 30, man. Good job. That was awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Is there anything you want to promote? Anything you want to plug? Um, <laughs> no, just uh, like when you, if you, if you do want to start up a business, like honestly go chat to uh, either a budget advisor or sure. an accountant. Um, Someone qualified. Get that, get that um, advice. But I just want to encourage uh, people to do that and um, like, you know, take a, take a risk, take a chance and pursue your dream because... Um, if you can take some time to understand the fundamentals behind the working of things, um, then you can find that whatever it is you want to do for your business becomes a lot easier. So you've got the passion part, which is actually creating the product and, and servicing it. And then you've got the... Um, Alrighty, guys. Mm-hmm. Don't hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Dude, really, really thank good. you so much. Longer than I thought it would. But, Cheers, uh, just a really good conversation. Really chill. Had a great time. Uh, more episodes every week we or me put out a new episode Um, just different topics fun stuff serious stuff intellectual mainly intellectual stuff I wear glasses now Um, yeah hope you enjoyed Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe Uh, and yeah thanks bye